Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hello and welcome. I like that music. I didn't let it play too long, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about that music, Jean-Jerome, before I do all the intros and everything? Yes, well, it seems to be composed by an Adrian von Siegler, who is on Patreon. Uh, it's very, very powerful music. Very much like it. Uh, it classified under a Celtic music, and the song is called mm -hmm. Wolf Blood. So I love it. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, yes, so, it uh, is. A shout out to Adrian von Ziegler. Yes. I want to say welcome, everybody, for tuning in this Friday, episode 17. Tonight's guest, we have Jennifer Ozal, who is a druid. And I know we've been trying to get a hold of somebody in the druidic community. <laughs> and finally, we have. So I'm looking forward to this show. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people who are tuning in and would like to know a little bit more. So I'm going to begin, first of all, by reading the bio. And hello, Ken. Happy Friday to you, too, to read Jennifer's bio. Okay, so Ancestral Eyes welcomes Jenny Ozell, a Druid member, OBOD Oviet grade, live from Darlington, England. Yes, she is live <laughs> from England. She's tuning in. It's probably 1 a.m. in the morning for her, while here it's 8, 8 p.m., right? Right. That's so right. I appreciate it. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for tuning in and joining our show this evening. We are going to have some people asking us questions. I know I have my questions all ready to go, but I will continue reading your bio. So Jenny Azal is a Druid, as I've said. She is a member of the OBOD at Ovid Grade, a BDO at the Bardic Grade, and a TDN. We'll find out what all that means. She has been involved with Druidry for about 12 years, mostly in a solitary capacity. And she is currently the Education and Youth Manager for the Pagan Federation. She's an educational consultant in the field of religious studies, having carried out a number of roles for the Religious Education Council of England and Wales for the last few years. She's a senior examiner in religious studies at both the GCSC sorry, GCSE and A-level with a major awarding body and was head of religious education at a number of schools for many years. Jenny is currently a PhD student at Durham University, working under the auspices of the Center for Death and Life Studies, based in the Department of Theology and Religion. She's conducting research into dead Let's say that again. She is conducting research into death rites among contemporary druids in the UK. In addition to her co in addition to her PhD research which she is conducting on a part-time basis, she's also a co-owner and director of a funeral home. I love that. That forms part of her, the growing movement in the UK towards a greater openness an honesty and an authenticity in the way funerals are arranged and conducted. She has helped to reimagine and design funeral rituals that are relevant to those involved and has provided help and advice 
with home funerals. And sometimes she sleeps, <laughs> but not tonight. <laughs> she has agreed to join us. So once again, welcome to Jennifer. Welcome to my co-host, Jean-Jerome. You can Bonjour say hello boye. now, Jean-Jerome. <laughs> boye. Good evening and welcome to our guest. Uh, Jennifer, Jenny, it's very nice to have you with us. Thank, Thank you, you for you. for raving, uh, you know, staying up late to to be able to be on the show. And uh, looking forward to learning more about the current state of Druidry in England. Yes. yes, absolutely. And especially from this aspect of a personal personal uh, uh, attention to detail of funeral rites. So I'm going to begin, first of all, I want you to tell us what all those, those initials stand for. But... <laughs> Before we do, okay, if you could just explain the capacity of your role as an educator and youth manager for the Pagan Federation and also as an educational consultant in the field of religious education in the Council of England and Wales. So I guess that's a big question, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a huge question. Um, by way of context, um, religious education in Britain is is compulsory up to the age of 18. There has to be some religious education. Uh, what form that takes is, well, firstly, it's not devotional. So it's the academic study of religion. Right. Um, according to law, and the last time the law was changed on this was 1987, it has to reflect the fact that religion in the UK is mostly Christian. So Christianity is the starting point. It also right. has to include at some point in the, the statutory education from the years 5 to 18 or from 5 to 16, it must include something on uh, what Ninian Smart in the 60s classed as the six world religions, which are Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Sikhism, which in the modern world sounds a little bit random, and it is. And this is beginning to change. There is starting to be an awareness coming into religious education that religion is much broader than that. So my, my initial history is as um, an RE teacher. My initial degree was, believe it or not, in biblical studies. And from that, I went into teaching um, religious education for a long time. Um, I developed an interest in Hinduism, uh, almost coincidentally, and I went on to do a master's degree in Wales, looking partially at Hinduism and partially, and this wasn't deliberate, it just sort of happened, that it came to look at death in a variety of different contexts. Um, so that is sort of my background. I have a number of different roles which are largely unconnected. So... Um, my expertise in Eastern religions really um, is what got me into the examining role. So uh, in this country, school children take statutory exams at the age of 16. And then if they mm -hmm. stay in education, again at 18. So the 16-year-olds take GCSEs and the 18-year-olds take A-levels. And I have a role in writing those exams and in leading the teams of people that mark those exams. Wow. Uh, so that's, that's the examiner side of it. Uh, completely unconnected to that 
I've carried out a number of roles for the Religious Education Council. Now, the Religious mm -hmm. Education Council has no statutory role. It's um, an association formed of various stakeholders in religious education. So that includes a number of religious education charities that specialize mm -hmm. in RE and also a number of faith bodies. And for the Religious Education Council, I have uh, I was a few years ago involved in a project that called Resilience, which was designed to help RE teachers who are not always specialists. Sometimes they're non-specialists that get dumped with teaching RE and feel a bit out of their depth. Uh, okay. And it was designed to help those teachers and specifically to help them teach controversial issues. So that was going into schools to provide support to RE teachers. Uh, more recently, I was on their task group that was looking into ways to change and improve RE and I was sort of their liaison with the exam system on that and then at the moment I'm an REQM examiner. Uh, RE, the religious education quality mark is something the REC offers to schools to recognise outstanding quality in religious education and I'm one of the people that goes into schools to assess that. Um, wow. My role for the Pagan Federation is completely separate to any of those. Um, but the Pagan Federation, and I can't really tell you much about what this role involves because it, it hasn't existed for very long. I'm the first incumbent of it. Um, but um, the idea is that I am sort of a link between the Pagan Federation and the REC. So I'm one of their reps. So when the REC has meetings, I go along to represent the Pagan Federation. I'm also nice. there as a liaison to schools. So if a school, schools do not have to teach paganism. They don't routinely teach paganism. They can teach paganism. And sometimes they get requests from parents and they have no idea where to start. And I'm the contact in the Pagan Federation that would give them some idea of where they could start teaching about paganism. And also to try and raise the profile of paganism with um the various religious education institutions in the UK to just make us more respectable and more right. normal, more expected, I suppose. Right. Wow, that's quite the role. Uh, obviously, you're very well qualified to, uh, to, to take on that role and especially to represent the Pagan Federation too. Uh, and I commend you for doing that. I mean, like, that's, a, that's pretty daunting, <laughs> I would think. <laughs> But, you know, here you are, right, doing that, right? So now what I wanted to ask you was with regards to all of the, the OBOD, OVIT grade <laughs> and the BDO at the Bardic grade and the TDN, what is that exactly? What Can you kind of just briefly sort of explain that? Okay, I will try to. Um, so... There are various Druid orders in Britain, yes. some of them bigger than others, some of them have an international presence, some of them less so. In fact, I think most of them have some international presence. Um, now, this is something that sometimes causes confusion. And when I talk about the history of Druidry a little bit, I'll go into this. But there, right. are, there are three completely different types of Druidry that exist in Britain. So there are three different contexts in which you might hear the word Druid. One mm -hmm. is Masonic. So there are Masonic Druid orders going back to the 1780s. 
Um, there's only one I'm aware of that's still functional and they are not at all common, but they do still exist. They have nothing to do with religion. Um, second type is what I call cultural druidry. And cultural druidry you will find in countries that have a connection with Celtic culture. So particularly in Wales, uh, right. there is right. also a process in uh, Cornwall um, in the Isle of Man. Now, right. they share a common ancestor with religious druidry in the form of a guy called Yolo Morganog, who was a Welsh stonemason at the end of the 18th century. And um, he, he claimed to have discovered some medieval, early medieval Welsh manuscripts that contained information about Druidry. Now, almost certainly he wrote them. So whether, you know, basically, depending on how you view him, he was either a forger or he was right. an inspired genius. My guess would be he was somewhere between the two. But he <laughs> began the cultural movement, the bardic movement, which in Wales takes the form of the National um, Annual Eisteddfod, which is a competition in bardic arts in the Welsh language. So that would be music, poetry, essaying, right. that sort of thing. That still right. exists very much. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or a former Archbishop of Canterbury, was an initiated mm -hmm. druid in that order. Um, ah. Again, it has nothing to do with religion at all. Um, okay. And and in fact, the Queen and Prince Philip are, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting it wrong. The Queen and Prince Philip are Druids in that capacity, in the um, the Gorseth of the Isles of Britain, who are the people who run the Eisteddfod. So they are Druids. You very often see, you know, the Queen is a Druid. It's true, but not in any sort of religious sense. The oh, third okay. group of Druids um, is the ones that I study who I call religious druids, which is a little bit controversial, we might touch on that later, but they are the ones that take inspiration from the Iron Age druids and have a spiritual component to what they're doing. Amongst mm -hmm. those druids, there are a number of different orders. Uh, the biggest one is Obod, the order of bards, ovates and druids. Um, right. And that has a wide international presence. There are many, many members of that across the world. Um, in nature, it is quite psychological, both the previous um, chosen chief, Philip Cargom, and the current chosen chief, as of July, Ima Burke, mm -hmm. uh, are psychotherapists, and they have a background in that. It's, I would say it's quite a global mm -hmm. movement in its outlook. It tends mm -hmm. to be very open in terms of beliefs, uh, welcomes mm -hmm. people from a, a wide variety of different beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the biggest Druid order. And that's the one at which I'm at the Ovate grade. I'll say a little bit about that in a second. Uh, okay. The next biggest order is the British Druid order, the BDO. And okay. that is a little bit different in flavour. Now, you know, we, the, we have all these different orders, but by and large, they get on with each other very well. And they work together on certain things. Nice. Um, so it's not that they're competing orders but they have right. slightly different flavours. And uh, the British Druid Order sees itself in far more shamanic terms and far more distinctively polytheistic terms than oh, Obod necessarily does. 
Um, and in that order, I'm at the Bardic grade. Uh, there are many other Druids. The Anglesey Druid order is very important in Britain. There are other orders. Uh, the other order that I'm a member of is the Druid Network, TDN. Um, TDN was set up originally. It's not a teaching order in the way that OBOD or BDO are teaching orders. Uh, mm -hmm. It was set up originally as a mechanism for Druids of all the different orders to talk to each other and okay. to, um, to act as one when the need arose. What's okay. very interesting about the TDO is that it is, in recent times certainly, and at the moment, it's the only pagan organisation that holds charitable status because of its religious nature. So in other words, it's, that is very valuable because it means we, we don't in this country have a mechanism by which religions are recognised as valid or not. But mm -hmm. Charities Commission, if the Charities Commission has granted religious charity status to the, the Druid Network, it means that it is recognising it as a religious body. And that, that took 10 years, that fight took nearly 10 years, and it is very significant because it means that uh, it's very difficult for any government body, for the Interfaith mm -hmm. Network, for the Religious Education Council to claim mm -hmm. that Druidry, and by extension paganism, is not a real religion. So um, that's very important for that. No kidding. These are, wow, very important steps going forward in the pagan uh, community in, in the UK and specifically with uh, Druidry. Uh, I find that fascinating. I really do. And, and great. I mean, it's, it's part of the cultural uh, heritage of the United Kingdom for sure. So now I'm going to ask a basic question for those who are tuning in and may not know what exactly is Druidry. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> Could you tell us the the what Druidry is and describe the different types, which um, I think you have in in essence, but in in the sense of a faith. I believe when we were having our private discussion, you were mentioning that there were Christian and pagan Druid um, faiths. So if you could give us a little bit of a description on that. Well. You say it's a simple question. Yes. <laughs> it really is. Um, firstly, and th this is this is a bit of a personal thing. I I, I think beliefs mm -hmm. is the wrong word to use because okay. you can have a circle of druids with thirty druids there, and you will have thirty completely different belief systems, and that right. is fine. So, as with yeah. a lot of um, pagan religions, I think. What you yes. have is an orthopraxy rather than an orthodoxy. So uh, druids tend Absolutely. to do a lot of the same things rather than believe a lot of the same things. Right. Um, and to me, um, you have, within druidry, you have um, monotheists, you have duotheists that speak in terms of a god and a goddess, very similar to Wicca. You mm -hmm. have polytheists, you have hard polytheists who worship a number of different deities, you have animists, which I'll speak about in a second, um, mm -hmm. you have atheists, not many, but they do exist. You have mm -hmm. druids who would also describe themselves as Wiccan, and you have druids, religious druids, who would also describe themselves as Christian. So it's a very open way, and this is why mm -hmm. I say, you know, 
what do druids believe is is right. not a helpful question very often because no, uh, it's not. there are so many different things that, that druids believe. What I would say makes druidry distinct amongst pagan religions is um, it's rather than a belief system, it's a way I think of orientating yourself towards towards the world. So um, things that tend to be very important to druids mm -hmm. are ecology, and I mm -hmm. think if I had to sum it up in one word, I would say relationship. Things that are really important to druids are relationship. Relationships with each other, relationships with the wider political world. Paganism is very outward looking. It tends to engage with politics. Yes. It tends to engage with um, activism. Um, yes. Relationship with the landscape around people. Uh, relationship mm -hmm. with, to use a term that's become very popular in paganism recently, and it's, it's often attributed to Graham Harvey. Um, he has made it popular amongst pagans, but it actually goes back to a scholar called Holloway in 1960, who was writing about the, um, um, I'm trying to get the pronunciation of this right, the Ojibwa people in Canada. Ojibwe. Ojibwe. Oh, that's it. Ojibwe. Ojibwe. Um, he was actually studying them, and he coined the term other than human persons. And this is a term that Graham Harvey has made very popular amongst paganism, paganisms, um, that relationships mm -hmm. can be with persons, some of right. whom, many of whom, most of whom may not be human. And that would include uh, the animals in a landscape that uh, yes. Druids would see themselves very much as in relationship with those. It would yes. include what pagans, well, have many, many names for. Uh, but I suppose the simplest way to describe it would be um, land spirits or spirits that are particular to a place. So they right. might be called whites, they might be called uh, land spirits. Uh, in, in Celtic traditions, they're sometimes referred to as fairies or she. Um, yes. The problem with that is it gives you a Victorian idea of fairies, with you know, little people with wings. Um, <laughs> um, those relationships might be with gods. Um, they might be with yeah. ancestors. So um, I would say that animism is very common amongst modern Druids. But when I mm -hmm. say animism, animism in religious studies has tended to be defined in the way that Edward Tyler defined it in um, many, many years ago, where he said mm -hmm. it was the belief that things had souls. So a tree has a soul or a river has a soul. And right. Harvey, Graham Harvey, who's a uh, professor of religious studies in this country, has um, talked a lot about what he calls the new animism. And this isn't a new belief system. He is saying that Tyler basically misunderstood what animism was, because when he was studying mm -hmm. indigenous peoples, he was mm -hmm. studying them with, through Christian eyes, if, you, if that makes sense. Right. He was seeing yeah. what he expected to see with a worldview that was essentially Christian and therefore right. is dualist and sees people in terms of a body and a soul. Um, right. And how um, Harvey uh, defines animism, he says, animists are people who recognize that the world is full of persons, only some of, hum are hu some of whom are human and that life mm -hmm. is always lived in relationship with others. 
and this mm -hmm. is um, very much um, a way of looking at the world that I would say is becoming increasingly popular amongst modern druids. Um, I like that definition. Yeah, yeah, I do as well. Um, druidry also tends to have a very good reciprocal relationship with academia. So, um, as you've seen from that, so a lot of druids mm -hmm. will be aware of the work of Graham Harvey. Um, mm -hmm. And, and will define themselves and the way that they see the world. You know, they'll look at mm -hmm. things like that that Harvey has written and go, yeah, that's exactly what we mean. So yeah. there, there, is, there is a conversation that goes backwards and forwards a lot of the time between Druidry and between um, academia, which is helpful for me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And also another thing that makes Druidry distinctive, I think, um, is its its view of the importance of creative arts, um, particularly storytelling, music, yes. poetry, as religious or spiritual acts in mm -hmm. their own right. So mm -hmm. to be creative so. is to be open to something that uh, Yolo Moganog talked about a lot and has become an absolutely central word in Druidry, which is Arwen. Um, Arwen is a Welsh word. And okay. it means it, it, the closest definition of it is flowing. Um, but it's, it's used in Druidry to refer to inspiration, but not so much flashes of inspiration as being plugged into the world as a source of regeneration and um, inspiration. And creativity is seen to flow out of this connection to Arwen. Um, and so... Um, everything is connected to story. And if, if I had to sum up Druidry, uh -huh. which is incredibly difficult, um, <laughs> I, would, I would say that Druidry in Britain today actually is the stories that it tells about itself, which are many and varied. I, I find that very interesting and that's true. If, if I were to look at Druids, um, I've learned so much already, I mean, besides <laughs> all the different types, but, uh, is the storytelling and the creativity of the storytelling and the singing. Okay. I know when we've had uh, pagan festivals here in Canada and uh, Wiccan festivals, um, a lot of the Bardic uh, Druid types come forward and they, they sing, they tell their stories. And that's half the fun is just listening to the stories. I mean, it's fascinating, but Anyway, thank you for, for really kind of defining it and giving that brief history. And because my next question was, what are some of the beliefs? But I think you've already answered that. So I'm just <laughs> going to go straight on into the other question that we had. And um, what I wanted to, to address here is how does Reconstructionism and Neopaganism play into the modern Druidic movement? Okay, so in terms of Reconstructionism, mm -hmm. that really isn't something that is viable with Druidry because How we so? know so little, we know so very little about the people from whom we take our name. So right. the word Druid, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, mm -hmm. appears in classical sources uh, it's, it's first mentioned in a source that dates to about 300 BCE, 
which no longer exists. So we only have that as it's quoted by somebody writing much later. Right. Um, but most, most of what we have comes from a period between, say, about 200 BC and about um, maybe 1500, maybe 200 AD. So approximately that 400-year period. And okay. from that entire period, we have maybe 12 pages worth of material uh, in total that mentions Druids. Okay. And what they seem to agree about is that they are some sort of priestly class of the Celtic yes. people. Um, and that is about all that they agree about. Mm -hmm. They thought that the sources tend to fall into two camps broadly, and some of them include both. The first camp is mostly from the Greek sources, and that describes Druids as being very learned people um, mm -hmm. whose training could take up to 20 years, who mm -hmm. were um, schooled in history, in the Bardic mm -hmm. arts, in astrology, that mm -hmm. no religious service could take place without them. Uh, that they were judges, that they could stop a war as it was starting, that, we, that the, um, the kings and the leaders of the tribes would always consult them before taking action. So mm -hmm. that's one view that we have of Druids, and it's very nice to think that that's what was really going on. The other view... And was it? <laughs> well, we don't know. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. The, <laughs> the other view that the classical sources give us is of right. basically bloodthirsty barbarians who would sacrifice human beings at the drop of a hat and who thought that the more people you sacrificed, the better the harvest was going to be and who mm -hmm. predicted the future by watching the death throes of a dying man and seeing which way the blood flowed. And it's a very different picture. Now, I suspect uh -huh. that there are some elements of truth in both of those, mm -hmm. but every, mm -hmm. all of the classical authors that were writing very few of them had actually been to any of the Celtic countries or would have had first-hand knowledge of Druids, and all mm -hmm. of them were writing with an agenda of one kind or another. And if, mm -hmm. if, if anybody, if any of your, your listeners want a really in-depth history of Druidry, uh, there is a book called Blood and Mistletoe, written by Professor Ronald Hutton, which is absolute chapter and verse on everything that is known about Druidry. Um, what the, sorry, could you repeat the title? I find that fascinating. Blood. The title is Blood and Mistletoe, which are two things mm -hmm. that um, the ancient sources mentioning quite a lot about um, when they're talking about Druids. Well, the two sources mention mistletoe, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And he says in that book, um, it's possible that we have in those 12 pages a lot of very good information about the Druids. And it's equally possible that there isn't a single correct fact in there. And we have no way of knowing which is which. So we just do not know mm -hmm. anything with absolute certainty about the Druids. And we know even less about the religion that they were practicing. Um, there are a few hints that come out of archaeology, mm -hmm. but not very much. So mm -hmm. to reconstruct that religion would be pretty much impossible because we have we have via the mm -hmm. Romans, the names of a very small handfuls of deities, mostly from Gaul. So Tyrannus as a thunder god, Asus, mm -hmm. um, 
Rigantona. There's a handful of names and that's about it. Um, mm -hmm. So it would be almost impossible. And even if it were possible, I'm not convinced that reconstructing an Iron Age religion in the 21st century is actually a brilliantly good idea. Um, mm -hmm. Our basic mm -hmm. assumptions about the world have changed. Um, right. And I suspect they've changed for the better. I'm not sure that sacrificing people is a really great idea. Um, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so um, what Druids do, and I think all groups of religious Druids do that, do this, is that they take the idea of the Druid as an inspiration, as a source of inspiration. And this has been happening in Britain since about 1500. So from mm -hmm. the 1500s onwards, you start to see, all across Europe actually, you start to see references to Druids and they are used by whoever's writing about them to support whatever claim they're trying to make. So uh -huh. from the 1500s onwards, the Catholics used them uh, as ancestral figures because they saw them as precursors mm -hmm. of, their, of their ritualistic form of religion. The Protestants mm -hmm. um, used them as uh, ancestral figures in a different context. Mm -hmm. They were presented as the British Empire expanded and they, uh, the British started to encounter indigenous mm -hmm. religion. They looked back mm -hmm. to Druidry as their own indigenous religion and saw what was noble and good in it. And then a little mm -hmm. bit later, they started depicting it as far more savage and brutal. Um, mm -hmm. so basically, when I say Druidry is the stories that it tells about itself, that has been true for five, six hundred years. Um, mm -hmm. okay. But the Druid orders would look at the Greek version, the Greek model of Druids as wise, priestly, very well educated, um, mm -hmm. artistically competent people mm -hmm. who acted as judges, who acted as arbitrators of justice, mm -hmm. uh, who advised kings, and they would mm -hmm. see this as the model of the sort of person that they were trying to be. So I think from the reconstructionist version, that's as close as you can get. There are certain right. symbols that appear within Druidry. So uh, the golden sickle, which comes, I think, out of I mm -hmm. think it was out of something Tacitus wrote, but it might have been Strava, um, who wrote about the Druids cutting mistletoe with golden sickles. So you will see some Druids mm -hmm. with sickles as a symbol. Um, you'll mm -hmm. see a lot of Druids wearing white robes, which seems to be because of a misunderstanding about some um, figures on a church, which in again in the late 1500s, somebody described as Druids, although they probably mm -hmm. weren't. Um, mm -hmm. So to that extent, there is a degree of reconstructionism. Um, okay. But I would say less so than in, for example, heathenry, about we know a lot more about, about Norse religion, for example. Right. Um, in terms of its place within paganism, yes. it, is, it is a neo-pagan movement in that the majority mm -hmm. of spiritual druids would describe themselves as pagan but not right. all, as I've said. Um, yeah. Something I was yeah. always, always teaching my kids when I was a teacher, under no circumstances ever write, all Christians believe, all Hindus believe, just right. don't use the word all, just right. never go there, right. Um, right. about anything. Um, most spiritual pagans, sorry, most spiritual druids would describe themselves as pagan. As pagan. Uh, mm -hmm. And as belonging to, and I see paganism as a family of religious traditions 
that have certain mm -hmm. familial traits in common, as well as mm -hmm. differences between them. In Britain, I would say that Druidry is probably the second biggest after Wicca uh, and witchcraft more broadly. Um, it is Historically, it is slightly older than Wicca as Wicca currently exists. And I'm speaking there as Wicca as a bounded religious tradition as it was presented by Gerald Gardner. Yes. Uh, yes and absolutely. for that definition of Wicca, then uh, Druidry... Druidry, as a specifically religious thing, I would say, begins with Yolo Moganog at the end of the 18th century, which makes it, in neo-pagan terms, actually quite an old tradition. Um, the direct mm -hmm. ancestor of um, the spiritual Druid orders was the Universal Bond, which began holding mm -hmm. ceremonies at... Um, at Stonehenge around about 1909, I think. Ah, okay. So around 1909, around Stonehenge, and yet many yeah. people uh, believe that they were there, you know, as part of Stonehenge. So thank you yeah. for clarifying that, yes. Yeah, that idea that the Druids built Stonehenge goes back to mm -hmm. um, an archaeologist, well, a antiquarian would be a better term, I suppose, called William Stukeley who um, in 1740, between 1740 and 1744, he published books on Avebury and Stonehenge. And mm -hmm. his, his opinion was that they had been built by the Druids. Now, we know that that's not true because we know that they are thousands of years earlier than the earliest records we have of Druids. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. at the time he was writing, the world was only believed to be 4,000 years old. So once, once okay. you said they are older than the Romans, and he was the first person really to say that they were older than the Romans, they were widely believed to be either Roman or Viking. Um, mm -hmm. Once you say they're older than the Romans, you, you don't really, in the late 18th century, have anywhere else to go other than the Druids. That's about as, as much earlier than the Romans as there is. Um, yeah. And that view uh, started to be discredited, actually, in the middle of the, the 19th century uh, and was mm. completely discredited by certainly by the 1920s. Um, but it has remained so integral a part of, of cultural awareness, almost yes, yes. that you come across. If you stay Stonehenge, they'll say Druids, which is, <laughs> yes. is really interesting. Absolutely. And this is why, you know, in, in the discussions with the government over access to Stonehenge, um, the Druid Orders have said quite rightly that there may not be any connection between the ancient Druids and Stonehenge, but there has been a connection between modern Druids and Stonehenge for well over 100 years. And so mm -hmm. there, there is uh, a tradition established there. The first people calling themselves Druids that ever met at Stonehenge were a Masonic order, the ancient order of Druids, and they were meeting mm -hmm. there in the 1850s. So there is a connection there. But th there, there is, sadly, no ancient connection between Druids and Stonehenge. And, you know, mm -hmm. some people have suggested, well, maybe they used it. And maybe they did. But there, there's no hard mm -hmm. evidence to support that. There's no proof. Right. Yeah. But thank you for clarifying that. No, true enough. Now, I just uh, aside before I ask my next question, um, Having said that, 
I know there's there's been books written on the different types of druidic um, gods and goddesses. What do you make of that? Is, is, is there a is this like an overtone again of neo-paganism and and sort of like a, a, a Wiccan strain, shall we say, of of druid? No, I wouldn't say it was particularly connected to Wicca. Um, uh, what I did mm -hmm. find quite interesting um, is a guy called Andy Letcher who wrote his PhD on Bardic tradition in Druidry in 2000. Mm -hmm. It was published in 2000. And he says in his PhD that um, the predominant belief system in Druidry is duotheistic. Um, so that would mean mm -hmm. that it refers to a god and a goddess in mm -hmm. broad terms, which is quite similar to uh, the position of Wicca by and large. Absolutely. Well, that, yeah. I am quite certain that that was true in 2000 when he wrote that. I would suggest right. that in 2020 it is no longer true. And oh, what sorry. I have seen, now there, there certainly are Druids who are duotheists without any shadow right. of a doubt, but... Right. What I think there has been in paganism generally, and certainly in Druidry over the last 10 years or so, is a move towards hard polytheism. So mm -hmm. a move towards okay. the belief that different gods exist on their own terms, independent of human belief in them, and that it is possible to form relationships with these gods. So Absolutely. there is a group of um, Brythonic polytheists, for example, that I, I know quite a few people in that group who um, develop relationships with the, the gods of the Brythonic Celtic tradition, which includes Brittany in, in Gaul, in what was Gaul, and um, mm -hmm. Cornwall, uh, mm -hmm. and the Welsh tradition to some extent. Um, okay. As I said before, we don't know much about what deities the, the, the Druids were worshipping. We, mm -hmm. we get little, little hints and people, as people do, and as people have always been doing, um, take those hints and work with them, work with their personal experience of working with those deities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and build relationship in those ways. So mm -hmm. we have, as I said, some names. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and would you say, sorry for interrupting, would you say also taking on um, mythological... Um, in, in, in Druidry in particular, a lot of... You know what I'm trying to say. A lot, a lot of the story comes from... Um, um, a set of literature called the Mabinogi. Yes, thank The Mabinogi thank is a collection of Welsh medieval stories mm -hmm. that was, was at. translated yeah. by uh, Charlotte Guest in the, I think it was the 1880s. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they are difficult, they are problematic because they are they were probably written down around about the year um, 1200, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit later. They are mm -hmm. probably written down by monks, Christian monks. Mm -hmm. And okay. they, they are okay. definitely medieval literary compositions. 
So you can tell by um, mm -hmm. the the um, the syntax and the language that are used that as they exist now, they are medieval. Yes. There yes. is a great deal of debate, and I am not even qualified to comment on it. It's way out right. of my league. Yeah. There is a great deal of debate as to the extent to which, if any, they contain pre-Christian material. And there are characters in them that have magical qualities, magical capability. Mm -hmm. um, they assume the existence of a place called Anun, or Anuvan, which means the very deep, and which mm -hmm. seems to be some sort of other world or underworld in which magical mm -hmm. beings live. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first branch, there are four branches, which are the main stories that run through it. And mm -hmm. uh, the first branch concerns, and my pronunciation here will be awful, so mm -hmm. please don't, don't oh, listen to it. Probably between, a lot better than what I can say. <laughs> between Poole, who is uh, the Prince of Dovid in the south of Wales, and Arun, who is the king of Anun, and they develop a relationship that is foundational to a lot of other things that happen in the stories. There is a character who is very important throughout the branches called Rhiannon, who is a queen of the underworld, queen of Anun, who comes out of a mound, mounds are important, and um, who marries Pool. Um, and and therefore you sort of have what in medieval terms would be thought of as a fairy queen who marries a human. And right. many, many things happen as a result of that. For a right. lot of druids, those characters um, are the basis for developing relationship with deity. So Rhiannon in right. particular, um, a lot of druids uh, equate her with the Roman goddess Apona, who is a horse goddess. Right. And right. also with Rigantona, who's mentioned in um, some Roman altars, who also is a, a, um, a horse goddess and who appears also, as Rhiannon appears to be, to be associated with the sovereignty of the land. And then there are other key figures, Bran the Blessed, who is a giant, um, mm -hmm. and the, the, the conflict between giants representing the forces of nature and culture gods seems to be something that reoccurs in a, an Indo-European setting all over the place. So right. there are things there that may right. give us clues about a pre-Christian belief system but right. equally they may not and this is okay. this is always the problem but for a lot of druids yes they are foundational and okay. those are stories that are very much part of the teaching bodies of the teaching orders mm -hmm. and they're okay. seen as stories from which you can learn a lot both psychologically and about developing relationships with the other world keep keep absolutely. going i'll be right back okay keep going okay absolutely so it, it, it's sort of those myths and and you can see where they draw upon the gods and goddesses from those myths yeah. um now so this leads into my other question um you had mentioned that druidry is the second most popular religion the first being wicca Okay, so what I wanted to ask you was, um, how would you describe the Wiccan movement in affecting modern Druidry? And why is Druidry more acceptable than being called a witch or a Wiccan? Well, I, I knew this question was coming and I pondered about yeah. this a lot, partially because okay. Wicca is not my area of expertise. No, no, and but I just not, in reference I, to... And I'm not an initiate, initiated Wiccan, and I would not claim to know a great deal about, about Wicca. 
Um, as I said, they have they have origins in common. In mm -hmm. that, um, Gerald Gardner was very close friends with a guy called Ross Nichols. And Ross Nichols, whose bardic name was Nuin, is also an ancestral, a foundational figure in modern Druidry. Um, mm -hmm. He was a member of um, the ancient order of Druids, which is what the universal bond eventually turned into. And in, right, I right. think it was 1964, he broke away mm -hmm. from um, the ancient order of Druids. I'm trying, mm -hmm. trying to not get that mixed up with the ancient Druid I order, think, which is something yeah, different. Roughly, yeah. <laughs> and he founded. Um, the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, which still exists today as Obod, as the, right, the biggest order. Right. So he right. is foundational to Obod, and he and Gerald Gardner were very good friends. Uh, right. And that means that a lot of the um, a lot of the ideas, and it means that um, Obod Druidry, at least, and Wicca were developing at the same time. Yes, and they were yeah. being developed by people who would by two people who were talking to each other a lot. And the result and you that, see a lot of that overlap for sure. Yeah. And the result is that there are there are commonalities. Um, mm -hmm. The biggest obvious commonality, I would say, is the use of the wheel of the year as a ritual yeah. calendar, which is something that Joel Gardner and Ross Nichols put mm -hmm. together between them. Um, yeah. It's not ancient in that there has never been in history a time or a place where all of those festivals were celebrated by the same group of people. But all of I them have them. ancient roots of some sort or another. So what they basically right. did was to put them together into a, um, into a ritual calendar that works. It works really well. Yeah. I mean, it gives yeah. you something to celebrate. It absolutely does. Yeah. Lovely. Um, and, um, it gave a focus, and it gave a focus very much on nature, and that is something. Mm -hmm. that, although the names might might um, mm -hmm. might vary, so um, mm -hmm. Yule or the winter solstice, with the word Yule coming out of the Scandinavian tradition, of course, uh, Druids yeah. call um, Ebenarthan, which is the light of the bear. So there are different names, but the festivals are approximately the same. So that's one big commonality. Uh, mm -hmm. Another commonality is in the way that ritual is carried out, um, mm -hmm. certainly in terms of public ritual. So in right. common with Wiccans, uh, Druids will usually um, perform ritual in circles. Uh, mm -hmm. They will call the quarters in a way that is similar mm -hmm. to but not identical to the way that it's done in Wicca. So mm -hmm. in Druidry, for example, the, the association with the quarters tends to be the same. So the west is water, uh, the south is uh, fire, the north is earth, and the east is air. That's the same, mm -hmm. usually. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But there, there tend to be association with animals. So in, mm -hmm. in, in Obod in particular, the north is very often associated with a bear the West with the salmon, the salmon of wisdom, which again is something that comes out of both Irish and Welsh, Welsh mythology. Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. uh, the South with a stag and the East with a hawk, representing sort of dawn and air and light. And so the way right. that the, the quarters are called is slightly different. Um, right. Another specific difference, which again has its roots that goes back to Yolo Morganog, 
is that peace is given to the quarters specifically. So usually, in, in a lot of cases, not always, but in a lot of cases, a sword will be drawn or partially drawn. And then mm -hmm. um, somebody will, will say, let either, depending on the order, let there be peace in the north, let there be peace in the west, or is there peace in the north, is there peace in the west? And then the sword is sheathed again. So that's a difference. Right. Um, another significant difference is, well, two, both of which, again, go back to Yolanda Maganov. I can't emphasize the extent to which this guy is ancestral to Druidria. No kidding. <laughs> um, um, the chanting of the word Arwen is something that is um, common in Druid ritual. Now, the word Arwen was associated with Druidry through him, but it looks like it was first chanted usually three times by the Universal Bond at Stonehenge sometime in the 1950s, possibly 1956, but I might be remembering that wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but the chanting of Arwen is very common in Druidry. And uh, the Druid Prayer, which was written by Yola Maganog, but it is absolutely beautiful, it's just spot on. And mm -hmm. um, I think possibly because of its power, it, uh, it, is, it is used in most Druid ritual. And Philip mm -hmm. Carlton, who was the chosen chief of Obod until very recently, said quite recently that he thought one of the greatest powers of this prayer is the fact that when you say it together in ritual, the first bit gets very, very dodgy because it begins with grant, O oh, whatever, your mm -hmm. protection. And the whatever, what you will have, and this is what I said about beliefs, you will have the 30 druids standing in your circle will all say something else because they will all be appealing to divinity in a different way. Right. So um, right. you, will, you will get Granto God or Granto Goddess or Granto Gods or Granto Great Spirit. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, I tend to say Granto Shining Ones for reasons that are many and complex. But um, you will get this sort of muffled bit where everybody is saying different things. And then they <laughs> come back together again. And Philip was saying he right. saw this as one of the great strengths of Druidry that mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. have that diversity but you have uh and i can see that you have the prayer up on the screen so i won't i won't read it yeah, out thank you but that there is this commitment to justice and that is the thing mm -hmm. that is absolutely at the heart of the prayer and that is the thing that everybody is together on and it's uh the knowledge of justice and in the knowledge of justice the love of it and so question, if, if, if i may interject uh yeah. when, because that's a very considering it's in, an invocation or a prayer yeah. Justice has many different interpretations. What what is mm -hmm. the justice that is really being mm -hmm. you know invoked there? Are we talking about divine justice, natural justice? Uh, I, think you know, political... talking, I think that what for me at least, and this right. again is the thing, you could debate this and druids do. Um what you what it is talking about for me at least is a commitment to seeking justice. And I see that very much as social justice. Um, and if, and if you, you read on to the end of the prayer, it's, and in the love of justice, the love of all beings. And I think that is the central, that is the central idea behind it, I think. Okay. So all those right. are differences between Wicca and Druidry. Um, I think a, 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 another difference is, certainly now, is that whilst Wicca... And these, again, are huge generalizations. Wicca mm -hmm. tends to be more duotheistic. 
whereas mm -hmm. druidry tends to be more either animistic or polytheistic and those mm -hmm. are huge generalizations right. um, and right. I would also say that whereas Wicca tends to be quite inward facing druidry mm -hmm. tends to be quite outward facing so uh, in my experience at least Wiccans still tend to be more secretive about the fact that they are Wiccan mm -hmm. than Druids do about the fact that they are Druids mm -hmm. um, for various reasons and you mentioned the word witch and I'll come to that in a second um, mm -hmm. but I I was giving a lecture and this this is something in itself mm -hmm. I was giving a lecture at Durham to undergraduates a few years ago about um, the history of paganism in Britain and I did a Google image search on both Wicca and Druidry and I was absolutely stunned because I had expected to see pretty much the same sort of pictures for both. And mm -hmm. when I did a search for, for Wicca, I, there were a few pictures of Gerald Gardner. There mm -hmm. were a few pictures of um, Alexander's. Mm -hmm. There were lots of pentagrams mm -hmm. and there was lots of artwork. There were pictures of people's altars and there were lots of artwork. Beyond that, there were almost no pictures of people. When I did the search for Druidry, on the other hand, what I got was a face, a, a screen full of faces that I knew. And I thought, <laughs> that is a really interesting distinction. Um, Druidry tends to be very much outwardly engaged. It tends to engage with interfaith networks and discussions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. It tends to uh, engage a lot with ecological activism. Yes. And I don't say that Wicca doesn't, but whereas individuals from Wicca may be there, you're more yeah. likely to find groups of Druids doing rituals at anti-fracking sites and this sort of thing. I, uh, and there, is, I um, so. there is a group called the Warriors Call, which is a Druidic, um, not order, but it's, it's a, a gathering place for Druids that are engaged mm -hmm. in ecological activism. So I would mm -hmm. say that that outward-looking perspective mm -hmm. and I think it's because I think and you may correct me on this that it's very much because Wicca sees itself as a mystery tradition that is to yes. do with personal development and personal engagement and for mm -hmm. that reason it is much more private I don't think secret yes. is the word but private is the word mm -hmm. and um, well, secret too there's there's, yeah, there there's are a lot of traditions you know for various reasons oath bound etc Yes, and this, the same to some extent exists in Druidry. So each, uh, certainly the OBOD and the BDO have different grades. And again, that goes back to something Strabo said, but let's not mm -hmm, go there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and those grades have um, bodies of teaching that go with them. And people mm -hmm. are asked not to disclose that teaching. Uh, right. The reason given right. for that, though, is that because other people are also on that journey. And if somebody is talking about something at the end of the course, when somebody else is at the beginning of the course, then they're not taking the journey through the course in the way right. that it was designed, if that makes sense. So it's not so yeah, much the no, hidden knowledge as much yeah. as making sure that everybody has the same journey through. But in my right. experience, um, Druidry tends to be much more outward facing. And you said, yeah. uh, why is it more respectable or acceptable to be a Druid than a witch? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that it is. I will say that there are still connotations that hang around the word witch that have been unfortunate in the impact that they've had on people that have chosen to take that mm -hmm. title. So mm -hmm. um, 
And that goes back, obviously, to the images from medieval times of the witch trials, mm -hmm. where yes. witchcraft was being associated with Satanism, or it was mm -hmm. associated with being specifically anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of, that feeling around the word has stayed in a way that yeah. it, most people have negative associations with the word witch, yeah. which is a scare. Which is unfortunate. Which yeah. is extremely unfortunate. And I think mm -hmm. it's one of the, the great things about Wicca is that it, it hasn't therefore sought a different word. It has embraced the word witch and tried to change the image of it rather mm -hmm. than just say, well, let's call ourselves something else. Well, um, the, the, I have. <laughs> the, 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 the problem is, that, again, one of the most damaging documents, again, leading up yeah. to the Inquisition, yeah. was uh, written by two German monks yeah. uh, right. in, in uh, uh, and 14, 1400, mm -hmm. the 1400s, 1486, called the Malleus Maleficarum. Yeah. Yes, the Maleficarum. The hammer of, the, the yes. hammer of witches, right? And that, yes. like many things from the Catholic and church, did an enormous amount of harm damage. and damage, yeah. and it led to a lot of bloodshed and a lot of injustice. That's why I asked you about right. the word justice. Right. Because yeah. Talk right. about justice. After it's important to know what what is the source. Where do they find the authoritative source of that justice? Because that was you know definitely a misuse of justice or. Because they, mm -hmm. were, they were sent as the, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, indiscriminate persecutors and uh, of, of you know, people that practice any, and especially women. Exactly. This was the yep. the thing, the Malleus Maleficarum. Yes. Home of the witches. This the is probably Maleficarum. Yeah. This is probably the single most visible document that led to the malification of the uh, of the name witch. Indeed, yes. it was. Um, I actually read the Malleus um, a couple of years yeah. ago. Uh, it's an interesting book to read. Um, interesting. Mm -hmm. And what it also does, which didn't hasn't done modern witches any good, and again, Ronald Hutton has written a great deal about this. Uh, it once or twice it associated witchcraft with the goddess Diana. Um, and which is interesting. Or since our last guest. And, <laughs> From, from that came the idea that, that Joa Gardner was running with, which is probably not true, that the witches that were persecuted in the Middle Ages were following a pre-Christian religion. Um, but the idea was planted, and therefore this idea running, running into modern times that witchcraft is associated with these bad things, it's just generally not helpful. Um, no, no, it's not. But in Druidry, certainly in Britain, the public image of druidry tends to be, uh, well, people think of men with long beards in white robes, which is also not terribly helpful if you happen to be me. Um, <laughs> but it, also, it, it, it tends to be associated with quite nice, harmless eccentrics. So that tends to be the view that the, the great British public has of druids. You know, they're they're a bit weird yeah. and they're strange and they wear funny clothes and they say strange things, but by and large they're nice people and they're not harmful. And, right. and this is how they and as 
on the rare occasions when they come out in, in public culture, which tends to be around the summer solstice, where yeah. um, Stonehenge is all over the TV, um, but occasionally in, in murder mysteries. So there's a very popular murder mystery programme over here called The Midsummer Murders, um, about well, yeah. a, a detective in, in Oxfordshire who just lives in a place that's got a worse death rate than, I don't know, downtown New York. And yes, yes. <laughs> there is an episode there where they're, where druids feature and they turn out that at one point it looks like they're going to be the bad guys, but they're not. And they're these lovely middle aged class people, middle class people with an interest in antiquities that are terribly nice and terribly harmless. And we all get to have a bit of a laugh at them. And that <laughs> tends to be how druids are perceived, I think, by, by yeah. British at least. I just want to interject with two comments, actually three comments, two from uh, yes. mm -hmm. Dr. Salvato, Dr. Michael Salvato. First one, he said uh, to you, uh, uh, Jenny, that uh, you're spot on, and that's why it becomes so difficult to disentangle the mythos created by non-Druid neo-pagans and those who devote their study and practice to a sincere practice. Thank you, Jennifer. And his more recent comment, Yes, and the Malleus Maleficarum single-handedly misrepresented and conflates the practice of the craft and other occult sciences with the old religion. This led to Leland's misunderstanding and misinterpretation upon which Murray and Gardner built a house of cards. Absolutely, yeah. I would agree with that. And, and a question uh, mm -hmm. from Ken Allen. What is your opinion on the works of Joshua Free? Well, I'm going to be absolutely honest here and say I have not come across them. So if uh, if he can provide more information on that, I will go and find out what my opinion is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Ken, if you can provide some background on that, and then uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> Ken, start Googling now. Start Googling. Google, Google it, man. Google it. <laughs> Google and get back to us. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, Jennifer, answering that question. You handled that question perfectly, and I totally agree. Um, now, my other question then is, what are some of the practices? Okay, so now moving away from that, let's talk about some of the practices, because this is what I want to um, lead into what you do. And in regards to the practices, the death rites in particular, considering your Ph. doctorate at Durham University in theological and religious studies and your own practice, your own funerary practices that you are now promoting, which I love that whole idea. I like that whole new idea, getting away completely from the Abrahamic, uh, um, you know, our traditional ways of, of funeral uh, procession, burial, etc. So could you just and, tell us a little bit about that. And, and just to tack on to that question, because they're, they're kind of related. Jay Sword asks, are there sacred texts in the tradition of Druidry that you practice? And so what are they? So if any of the things that Teresa, like Teresa and Jay's mm -hmm. questions are almost in parallel, if there's anything that supports what you're going to describe in terms of if there's uh, uh, journals, books, uh, writings, and so forth, mm -hmm. that would be nice to know. Uh, there is no equivalent of the Book of Shadows, for example. Yeah. Uh, there, there isn't really anything that has scriptural status. 
The thing that comes closest to it, and I'm going to refer back yet again to Yolo Moganog, um, after his death, a lot of his writings were published um, by a guy called John Williams, who was foundational in the, um, the establishment of the Eisteddfod as the Bardas. Um, mm -hmm. And whilst most Druids, I'm going to go out on a limb here, whilst most Druids have not read the Bardas, an awful lot of ways of looking at the world that are common in Druidry, as well as a lot of the liturgy, such as the Druid prayer, come from the Bardas. So mm -hmm. to if, mm -hmm. if you want a book, that is it, but it certainly doesn't have anything like scriptural status. Right. Um, now, I'm probably going to be terribly disappointing in terms of death ritual. Um, okay. This is one of the reasons that I am, I am studying it. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that distinctively pagan druidry, druidry that can definitely be established as part of a pagan way of looking at the world as opposed to just an occult way of looking at the world. And I think right. those, there is a distinction between those two things. Um, yeah. Occultic paganism certainly goes back at least to um, at least to the beginning of the 19th century. Pagan, specifically pagan um, druidry, I think really can only be dated to the beginning of the 1970s. And what that means is that whilst the first generation, the likes of Ross Nichols, are dead, mm -hmm. the second generation, the people who were foundational in Obod, are still alive. And that okay. means that the development of any kind of funerary tradition is very much in its infancy. Having okay. said that, those people are now in their late 60s to 80s. And therefore, having a funeral tradition has suddenly become a thing. People are realizing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that it's going to be needed. Um, and so there have been various things that have been done as a response to that. Um, I've got some bullet points down for this because I've got quite a few few things to say here, I think. Um, Please share there, them, yes. There is no um, definitely established funeral tradition. There is no such thing as a Druid funeral. Um, mm -hmm. I would say the majority of um, pagans still, but Druids certainly, um, have a fairly traditional funeral. And the reason for that mostly is because their friends and their family are not Druids and it would not make a great deal of sense to them. And people don't want to make people uncomfortable. And right. a lot of people have a fairly standard funeral, probably with a, um, a non-religious celebrant. Um, mm -hmm. Having said that, there are obviously exceptions. Um, mm -hmm. And we are starting to see certain things developing. The big, the overwhelming thing, rather than any particular ritual or ceremony, mm -hmm. the overwhelming mm -hmm. thing is um, a desire for, for a natural burial. Now, yes. the natural yes. burial That's movement, I don't know what the situation is, is there, but the natural burial movement started here, I would say, in the, the mid-90s. Uh, mm -hmm. It actually started with a guy called Ken West, who was a cemetery attendant quite close to where I am here. He was in Carlisle. 
and he began this idea of natural burial, which means that mm -hmm. people are buried in woodland or meadow uh, in a site that is mm -hmm. not marked, so there is no gravestone, there is no marker, and everything that goes into the grave is biodegradable. So there is no embalming, there is no... Uh, any coffin that is used has to be biodegradable. And no. this has gone since the night, since the, it began as part of Carlisle Cemetery in the mid-90s. I think there are now about 250 natural burial sites across Britain. Nice. And when I did, I actually um, put up an online survey um, a couple of years ago um, asking about pagan attitudes to a whole range of things connected to death, including mm -hmm. funerals. And this, this was quite good because I've, I've read a lot of people's PhDs and a lot mm -hmm. of the surveys, and there is always a paragraph in the methodology explaining why the survey is valid, even though only six people answered it. So I didn't have high hopes when I set this up. Um, and my, my partner, Keith, he said to me, um, how many do you need to make this useful? I said, well, if I can get 50, that would make it statistically valuable. That would be fantastic. If I can get right. 100, that would just be brilliant. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, got, I got 1,060. So, wow. I, yes, pa pagans, one thing I, I can say absolutely, the only thing I can say absolutely unequivocally about pagans is that they like to talk, which is brilliant. Um, so I, I think True. I am now sitting on the biggest database in the world on paganism and death, which is which is quite nice. Um, and as a result of that, I can say absolutely that about 80% of the people I spoke to include um, ancestry and ancestors in some way or another in their personal practice. And also that um, way over 80% of the people that answered said that what they wanted was natural burial. Mm -hmm. um, so that is overwhelmingly something that pagans want to do. And okay. my supervisor did a research project on natural burial some time ago, and he looked at it from the point of view of a place in Cambridge that is linked to the Church of England. So he was mm -hmm. looking at Christians who wanted natural burial and what their spiritual narrative was around that. Right. And it was very much about giving back to the earth. And what yeah. I find really interesting is that when you talk to pagans, that narrative is exactly the same as it is for Christians, mm -hmm. except that mm -hmm. maybe they regard the earth as a personal deity to a greater extent than Christians mm -hmm. do. But mm -hmm. apart from that, this narrative of uh, gift giving and reciprocity is very much there for pagans as well. So mm -hmm. that is the single biggest thing that we see. As I said, in this, this survey, ancestors come up a lot. So wherever there is druidic funeral liturgy, which is not all that common, I've come mm -hmm. across a few examples, um, almost always ancestors are invoked, they're called, they're invited mm -hmm. to be present, and they are invited to receive the person that has died and to take, you know, to take mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. um, where there is the possibility to do so, I've come across a couple of examples of this. Uh, druids often engage with the dead body to a greater extent than is common in our culture. So where it is possible to do this, and this is also part of a progressive funeral movement within, within Britain, which is mm -hmm. a whole different area of my life, they will actually 
be present with the body at some stage in the, in the ritual mm -hmm. process. They will anoint it. They will speak to it. They will nice. talk to different parts of the body and thank them for what they've done. Um, mm -hmm. And um, very moving, very moving, very moving. Um, for some pagans, occasional druids, there is there has been a movement in Britain for some time to legalize open air pious for cremation. So mm -hmm. rather than just a crematorium, to actually have right. a pyre right. or the body can be, right. can be burnt. Um, there are various stakeholders in that in Britain who would like it to be legalized, which obviously includes mm -hmm. Hindus and Sikhs. But it also includes um, certain types of pagan, includes historical reenactors, actually, yeah, including my yeah. father. But it also includes um, um, a lot of pagans. And obviously, this yeah. is because there is historical precedent for this. We have historical sources that speak about this. We know mm -hmm. it is one of the things that people did in the Iron Age. It's not the only thing that people did in the Iron Age. Mm -hmm. So there is, there is this. But counted against that, there is ecological concern that some people feel this is not a helpful thing to be doing. Um, the open-air funeral, the open-air cremation, the state with, we are with that at the moment is that it is technically legal but functionally illegal because when the battle was won to make it legal, mm -hmm. so many provi provisos were put around it that it is pretty much impossible to do it legally. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see where that goes in the future. Um, mm -hmm. Another area that has been of great interest to me in particular, and which has become actually quite central to um, my PhD, to the extent that one and a half chapters out of five of the bulk chapters are about it, is mm -hmm. um, long barrows. Now, one, one of the things that I know pagans do, uh, not, not strictly legally, but they do it, is that cremated remains from people that are cremated are very often put in and around ancient monuments. So right. like the long barrows like um, West Kennet or where people can get away with it, Stonehenge, but it'd be virtually mm -hmm. impossible. They did find in 1956, they found a Victorian glass bottle in Stonehenge that had human cremated remains in it. So it's possible that one of the universal bond managed to get their cremated remains there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this is something again that, uh, that Druids will do very often if they can. Mm -hmm. And Graham Harvey sent me a picture that he'd taken of a, uh, a kissed, which is sort of a, a lined grave. And this mm -hmm. one probably dated from the Bronze Age. And in this, there was a little pile of cremated remains. So somebody had come across this kist and had actually wow. put a um, human cremated remains in it. So there is this desire to be close to ancient sites and sites that right. are seen being connected to the ancestors. And right. as an extension of that, um, in, I think, 2014, mm -hmm. uh, a guy called, and the name's gone, it'll come back, uh, in a place called All Cannings in um, Wessex, in Wessex, in Wiltshire. Mm -hmm. um, a guy built 
a replica long barrow. Now, mm -hmm. this is within an existing sacred landscape, an existing mm -hmm. Neolithic sacred landscape that includes mm -hmm. uh, Avebury, West Kennet, and a whole mm -hmm. load of Neolithic chambered tombs. And his mm -hmm. farmland is on this site. And um, it's not quite in sight of, of West Kennet, but only because there are hills in the way. It's about two miles mm -hmm. from West Kennet. And mm -hmm. he built a barrow. It's called um, All Canning's Long Barrow. He built this on, uh, on his land. And he built it to look like West Kennet Long Barrow. And wow. um, his name is Tim, and I cannot remember his surname, and it's driving me mad. And um, in it, the difference is that inside it, there are chambers with niches, and those niches are intended to receive human cremated remains. So it's not a burial chamber, it's effectively a columbarium, but it has the, the, um, the look of a long barrow. And his okay. initial intention was that this was where he was going to, to be placed when he died. Mm -hmm. and um, he didn't know how popular it was going to be. Well, mm -hmm. all of the issues have now sold. They're not all filled, but they are all mm -hmm. bought. And this was incredibly popular. It was popular with wow. pagans, which is no great surprise. Yeah. But it was yeah. popular with loads of other people as well, including Christians. Wow. And one of my research questions, one of the things I was fascinated about is what is it about this that is speaking to people, that is so important mm -hmm. to people? Mm -hmm. One of the thing is obviously this ancestral connection and this link to at least an imagined past. And since mm -hmm. all things was built, there are now, I think, another four or five barrows that have been built. Um, one mm -hmm. at uh, St. Neots in Cambridge, Willow Row, uh, which is a round barrow. And there's another long barrow at Sultan Manor in Shropshire. Um, and the one at Shropshire, they're doing all sorts of exciting things there. They've built a stone circle there. And mm -hmm. uh, Tim Ashton, who is um, the guardian of that one, it's his land that it's built on, mm -hmm. says that um, we know very little about why the original stone circles were built. We just don't know. But we do know that they are in some way connected to the movement of the heavens and that therefore mm -hmm. our ancestors or the people who built them, who are not geolog genealogical ancestors, but that's a different issue, the people who built them um, wanted to express some knowledge that they had about the way the heavens work. And mm -hmm. he wanted mm -hmm. in his stone circle to express some knowledge about the way the heavens work that we have. So there is actually a hole in a stone that is an alignment so that if you look through it, you are looking straight towards the black hole that is at the center of the galaxy. Wow. So, you know, there's all of these things that are going yeah. on. Yes, yes. And it's utterly fascinating. And um, not Absolutely. surprisingly, I mean, they're not, they are not uniquely a Druid thing. I wouldn't want you to think that, but there are obviously right. Druids right. who are very interested in them. And the one at all cannings for tax reasons, this was a, a strange thing, where the government, in its wisdom, decided that all cannings was being used for commercial storage uh -huh. uh, and therefore gave him a huge tax bill, uh, which exceeded by several times the amount of money he was making from the price. Um, now, if it had a religious designation, he would not have that tax bill. He therefore applied successfully to have Smart. it recognized 
recognised as a place of Druidic worship. So currently, legally in Britain, there are two places of Druidic worship. One of them is a flat in Blackpool. I have no idea what's going on there. I need to find out about that. And the other one is All Cannings Long Barrow. Now, there is a group of Druids that meet there. There always has been. They've met there from the beginning. But the uh -huh. site itself is not religious in that there are people of all religions and none who are using nice. the chamber. But the nice. place is designated as a site of Druidic worship because it has nice. to have this designation. And again, going back to what we were saying earlier about regardless of, of the, the historical disconnect between Druids right. and stone circles and barrows, in the public imagination, they are intrinsically linked. And so right. this place to be recognized as a place of Druidic worship just seemed the natural thing to do, if that makes sense. So no. all of these things are going on with, with, with death ritual. Uh, Obod runs a training course for funeral celebrants. Mm -hmm. And I have recently spoken to um, the lady that runs that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. said, Amongst other things, amongst other questions that I asked her was, what is different? Why would somebody do this? Because this mm -hmm. is to prepare people to take any kind of funeral, not just a Druid's funeral. Um, right. Why would right. somebody take this course rather than any of the other civil celebrant training courses that are available? And one yeah. of the things that we talked about that I found very interesting was that civil celebrants, broadly speaking, are concerned with the living. They're concerned with giving the best possible service mm, to, right, for, for right. the people who are left behind. Whereas right, she, and this right. is really interesting because I share, as a funeral director, as somebody who physically takes care of the dead, I totally am in agreement with her about this. That yes, right. we are in service to the bereaved, we're in service right. to the people left behind, right. but to the same extent or to an equal extent, we're in the service of the dead themselves. Absolutely. And this was something that seemed to be different in the way that the OBOD course was, was looking at things. Mm -hmm. She mm -hmm. said, obviously, we didn't talk in detail about what's in the course, but she said this is one of the things right. that is discussed and that people, as part of that training, are in right. encouraged to think very deeply about their relationship with death and about their relationship with ancestors, ancestors and ancestry. Right. Right. So those wow. are some of the things that are going on and that I'm looking yeah, at. Yeah, no, and I like that. I just wanted to acknowledge, um, Jean-Jerome, could you put back um, Carol, uh, I believe it was Carol Taz, who had yeah. mentioned the Canadian, yes, thank you, Carol Luz Trepanier, the mm -hmm. green burials in Canada. Mm -hmm. There is a small movement going on in Canada itself with regards mm -hmm. to the different types of burials. And yes, thank you, this is the one. Um, about how home funerals in Canada. Yeah. Um, anyway, anybody can read that. And, and thank you, Carol, for mentioning that. I wanted to say um, we have, to a small degree, um, some sort of different funeral rites within Canada. So thank you once again, Carol, for that. Um, they're mentioning there the home funeral movement which is slightly different although it's often connected that is something mm -hmm. it's, it's tiny in britain but it's there and this is the mm -hmm. idea that um people rather than engaging with a funeral director which is not a legal mm -hmm. requirement that people are taking their dead home looking after them themselves and then carrying out all the funeral arrangements which very often is a natural burial and this is something that we certainly as a funeral service, we've been involved in supporting people that have done that.
So ranging from um, providing them with a coffin to um, giving them advice over the care of a dead body mm -hmm. to making daily visits to make sure that they're comfortable and happy right. and the body is in a, in a good condition. So, yeah, right. that's also something that is, is to a very right. small extent, exists in Britain. Right. Thank you. Now, this leads to my next question with regards uh, to... comment coming up. Yes, it is, Timothy Dill. Thank you. What's that? Sorry. I'm seeing another comment coming up at the bottom. So you said, is yeah. it Timothy Dill? Yes, it is. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and this... Yes. Thank you, Gian Michael Salvato, our previous guest. Um, this leads me into the next question with regards to, and you've mentioned this, the ancestral link that Druidry has to the ancestors and in specific, the funerary rites. But is there a deeper or other link that uh, the Druids have in regards to ancestors? Because this will then lead to Jean Jerome and his linking, <laughs> as he always likes to do. Jean Jerome, I, did you catch that? <laughs> Um, ancestry, the idea of ancestry is absolutely fundamental in Druidry. It's everywhere you look. Uh, and as I've said, from more from so than Wiccans, yeah, I would say more so than Wiccans, yeah. And this, um, this is borne out by the survey that I did, where well over, well over 80% said that they have some form of ancestral practice. Now, that can take a number of forms. Uh, there are a number of guided meditations that I've come across that involve engaging with or meeting ancestors. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is obviously, because there is this connection back to the Iron Age, when modern Druids, and I, I, I think there's, to some extent this is problematic, but when modern Druids think of their ancestors, they tend to think of pagan ancestors, which is, is fine. Mm -hmm. um, but it means that they are missing out the 1,500 to 2,000 years in between who are also their ancestors. And Absolutely. this is an area that my personal feeling is that Druid, Druidry needs to find a way to engage with this. It is a fact that the majority of my ancestors, and certainly all of them that I can have any meaningful knowledge of, were at least nominally Christian. And this is, mm -hmm. is something that I feel Druidry needs to, to find a, a, a constructive way to engage with. Having mm -hmm. said that, um, there is this really powerful link, particularly to, um, and this is strange given that the Druids were Iron Age, the link that is felt is particularly to Neolithic and Bronze Age sites. So to the stone mm -hmm. circles and to the, the chambered burials or the, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the round barrows, these sorts of places. Um, and people, and another question that I had in my survey was about mm -hmm. anomalous or strange experiences that people have at these sites. And quite oh. a few of those came back in terms of feeling a connection to or engaging with ancestors at these sites nice. now this is really interesting because as i said that's right uh, up teresa's alley there <laughs> the, what, the what, what? People. right up your alley teresa Paranormal i know investigations in the uk 
I know. I'll, I'll send you a link. I've, I've got a published paper about this. I'll send you a oh, link. Oh, she's loving it. You, 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 um, you just see the, you know, Teresa's like. <laughs> the drool. The drool. The drool coming out. But I, I said earlier that the state of modern scholarship is that the Neolithic population was not genetically connected to the modern population, but not by more than about 10%. So the people that built these things are not blood ancestors of the modern population of Britain, right. which is really interesting. Um, right. But when, when Druidry thinks or writes about ancestry, it tends to think of it in a number of different ways, one of which is blood ancestry, which is fairly right. easy to explain. You know, what a blood ancestor is, everybody knows that. And there is right. an engagement with your blood ancestors and indeed with any problems that are in your 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 bloodline right. might be causing you psychological right. issues. Um, right. But the, the blood ancestors, because Druidry tends to engage with this wider than human world, it's a phrase that comes from David Abrams, and and I would very much encourage your, your readers to read David Abrams if they haven't already, a book called The Sense The Spell of the Sensuous which is absolutely brilliant on animism. Can you repeat um, that? This, called the, the Spell of the Sensuous. And it's the by Smell the of the Sensuous. Spell, spell. Spell. Spell, spell. Yeah. Okay. Spell, spell, spell. I liked it better the other way, the Smell <laughs> of the Sensuous. <laughs> and that is by David Abram. Um, because of this engagement with the wider than human world, um, and the reason I mentioned that book is because the, fr the phrase wider than human world comes from that book. Um, mm -hmm. Blood ancestors doesn't necessarily only refer to human blood ancestors. It goes way, way back into the evolutionary mix. Nice. Um, then there are ancestors of place, and this is where the builders of Stonehenge come in. Um, right. so the people and other things that have been where you are. And this is something else that is quite important in Druidry, which is engaging in your local landscape, whatever that is, yes. and finding yes. as much as you can about the people that have been there before you. And particularly Absolutely. with stories that are associated with particular features in the landscape. So um, for instance, close to me, there is a place called Ferry Hill, which is not uh -huh. a particularly pleasant place now, but in folklore, it's obviously derived from Fairy Hill, and there is a local legend about a dragon that was wrapped around this hill. So it's things about knowing those stories and knowing the the folklore and the, the stories that the land is telling about itself and about the people that right. have been on it. Right. And that is deeply important. The land spirits. So, yes. so when we talk about ancestors of place, that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. What stories were being told about this place by yes. the people that came yes. before? And of course, you can only go so far back with that. And one of the things that I personally found really frustrating is that we know so little about what the Iron Age and the Bronze Age people, what stories mm -hmm. were they telling about the place? We, we know so little, and that's really frustrating. Right, um, right. And the other kind of ancestry that Druidry tends to engage with is ancestors of tradition. Um, sometimes they're referred to as the mighty dead. So the mighty they dead? are the mighty dead. So they are the people 
that for a particular individual contributed to making them what they are. So right. in terms of Druidry, your ancestors of tradition would be people like Yolo Morganog and Ross Nichols right. and William Stukeley. So the people who were foundational to the tradition. And as an individual, so because I'm a Druid, I might consider them to be ancestors of tradition, but I might mm -hmm. also consider other people to be ancestors of tradition, um, right. depending on who I am as a person and the things that are important to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so Druidry engages with ancestry in all of these ways. And all of them, again, are about meshes of networks or meshes of interrelationship mm -hmm. with things mm -hmm. human and other than human. So persons that mm -hmm. are human, persons mm -hmm. that are not. Um, mm -hmm. And most, most Druids, or no, a lot of Druids, um, keep an altar in their house. And for those yeah. Druids that have an altar, one of the most common things is to have some form of ancestor altar or some place right. where ancestors are acknowledged. And that could, that could involve, you know, immediate ancestors. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of the liturgy I've seen around ancestors involves um, calling to ancestors that are known to me and ancestors that are not known to me. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, you might know one or two generations back and after that it all gets a little bit hazy. Right, right. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the ancestor altar usually is for both groups of ancestors. So you might have photographs of people and or animals that, mm -hmm. uh, that you have had that have died that are on that altar Absolutely. or things that belong to them or, you know, their, their favorite drink might be offered, particularly at Samhain. Um, this is, again, is uh, a festival that, uh, that Druidry has in common with Wicca. Uh, around mm -hmm. the time of um, Halloween. Now, there's a lot mm -hmm. of contro controversy about this because a lot of pagans feel that this is a pagan holiday that the Christians appropriated. I have to say, mm -hmm. I personally feel that this is a Christian holiday that pagans appropriated. <laughs> but it's not because what it is now is a really powerful, really important pagan festival. And that's I what think I so. think that is, rather than where I it came from. So. Um, I think so too. It's, it tends to be really, really important to Druids. So, you know, for a lot of Druids, Samhain is the, the big one. And mm -hmm. there are things that happen at Samhain. Um, there is a lot of performative ritual that involves passing through gateways and meeting with ancestors or inviting ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of Druids have something called a silent feast where a meal is yeah. eaten in reverse. So you start with the dessert and you work forwards and you don't speak, you ring a bell at the beginning and at the end, and between those two bells, you don't speak, and mm -hmm. there's a, a space laid for the ancestors. So it is a, a communing, it's a sharing of food with mm -hmm. the dead, mm -hmm. and uh, an asking of their blessing and their guidance and their support. Mm -hmm. um, and very often ancestors as well, um, are, and I think this is also slightly different to most Wiccan ritual, um, when the quarters are called, very often ancestors are invited to be present as well. Yes, yes. Nice, nice. So I get the sense that um, Druidry is more, um, I would say, more ancestral and more shamanic. 
Um, not casting any aspersions aside on Wicca or anything like that, but I really get that there's more of a shamanic practice with Druidry as opposed to anything else. Would, well, you, would you say the same thing? It depends on the Druid. It depends on the Druid, yes. And I think that's the same <laughs> with Wiccans as well, or, or, or other witches too, right? I, it I really does depend. It does depend. You know, you can't say absolutely right. about anything. There is a lot of shamanic practice within Druidry. Right. Um, yes, yes, that's what I, I was getting at. It is more prevalent in the British Druid order or it is more avert in the British Druid order than it is in Obod. Having said mm -hmm. that, there are a mm -hmm. lot of people, myself included, who are members of both orders. So it's not a, a, a clear-cut okay. division. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. These Druids yeah. do it and these Druids don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, the, the foundational ethos or philosophy of the BDO is shamanic in a way that Obod isn't. But you will find mm -hmm. shamanic practitioners within Obod as well, of course you will. Um, right. Now, the the uh, the chief, the archdruid of the British Druid Order is a guy called Philip Shalcross, and he mm -hmm. is very much a shamanic practitioner. Um, and he um, he also has the name of Grey Wolf, which goes back to an experience that he had in a sweat lodge, um, huh? where he had an experience with a wolf. Uh, that has mm -hmm. been absolutely foundational to his practice and continues to be so. Um, mm -hmm. And he speaks of Druidry very much as the indigenous shamanic religion of the British Isles, in the same way that there are indigenous shamanic religions in other places. And um, he says that what his Druidry is trying to do is to fill in the gaps that are lost in that religion because we don't have an unbroken mm -hmm. tradition. And yes. he does that in a number of ways. He he speaks to First Nation tribes in America. Um, yes. yes. In terms of sharing ideas and practices. He is very much of the opinion, and I have to say, archaeologically, I'm inclined to agree with him, that there were sweat lodges in ancient Britain. Um, Interesting. Yes. In, yes. Particularly in Orkney. I have seen something in Orkney that I can't interpret any other way. Um, mm -hmm. What happened in them, of course, is completely open to debate. We have no evidence there at all. Right. But I agree with him that there were sweat, like sweat lodges in ancient Britain, in the Neolithic. Mm -hmm. um, and so his form of Druidry is very much based around shamanism and indigeneity mm -hmm. and about developing relationships with the spirits mm -hmm. and the gods that were here. Mm -hmm. And again, um, BDO, just like Obod, um, uses the, the Mabinogi a lot in terms of doing that and using that as metaphor for right. uh, manic religion. So, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because the Slavic people also have uh, the Banya, which is a, basically, it's a sweat lodge. Yeah. And um, again, it's ritualistic it's cathartic, et cetera. Um, and, and that's something that people often forget and think that you know, sweat lodges are just native North American. Um, yeah. There are other cultures that do this. And um, that's interesting that you brought that up with regards to uh, a form of druidry that, um, that does much the same thing. So that's, that's good. 
I like that. I like somebody who actually is taking the time to research a little bit more and, um, and taking it back to, like you say, um, the place, uh, the yeah. land, right? Yeah. And, and that's what makes it more shamanic. I, 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 you know, I've learned a lot. I really have from, from what you've just told us. And I have a different respect for Druidry altogether than, I, than you know, not that I didn't have respect for Druidry before, but you know what I mean? It, it's, it's deeper. It's deeper. Yeah. In, in that sense. So I thank you for that. Now I'm going to hand over the show to my co-host, Jean Jerome, who's gotten lost in all the pictures and you're showing, this is a, like a, a sweat lodge, right? Jean Jerome. I'm not quite sure. It looks a little bit like it, but it's just showing different pictures of uh gray wolf. Of this uh, okay. gentleman that uh, uh, Jennifer has pointed out. And uh, right. definitely you can see like, yeah, as, as Jenny's saying, the um, uh, a lot of it, this gentleman's uh, motifs mm -hmm. and all that in terms of his practice right. very very shamanic, yes, very very indigenous. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Jean Jerome, okay. you take so, over now. So, Your so turn. In interest, so, so, in the interest of time, because we only have about fifteen minutes right. left, uh, I'm just gonna. Uh, unfortunately, I'm just gonna touch just uh, three quick questions and uh, related questions. One is divination. So within the Druid, uh, especially the, the ritual or the religious uh, uh, sort of arm or, or group of Druids, what is their chief form of divination? And is divination even, you know, something which, as you say, there's no absolutes, but is it something like, uh, like for instance, is the practice of, of casting Ogam part of Druidry, or is that just something that has you know sort of on the on the peripheral um are there other forms of divination okay i will try and be as brief as i can because i could talk for an hour about that um mm. yes there is divination uh it's not central to the extent that it's something you are expected to do or that people are expected to do mm. uh it is covered in um the teaching of both the bdo and the and obod um, mm -hmm. And there are various different methods that people use. So, um, for example, within Obod, there are two oracle card packs, the um, animal and the plant um, oracle cards that have been written by Philip and Stephanie Cargon, um, which are brilliant. They're really good. So tarot and oracle cards are used by druids. Yes, the ogham is used. Um, that's something that I'm sort of working on quite a lot at the moment. Um, <clears throat> again, the actual connection back to the Irish sources and pagan Irish sources is tenuous, but it, mm -hmm. it, it's a thing that people build relationship and connections with. My feeling right. is that it was originally used as a mnemonic for um, bards that were memorizing loads and loads of stories. I think the associations around Ogden were used mainly for that. But... Yeah, short answer, yes, it's used, and there are many, many methods, and Ogham is certainly one of them. Yeah. Okay. And okay. so the other question, so just a comment, uh, again, the, the int very interesting because, I mean, the, the purpose of the show is really to, to, to examine the ancestral practice and the revival, in many cases, of the ancestral practice mm -hmm. in different cultures, uh, parts of the world, uh, mm -hmm. 
in terms of how it impacts daily lives, not just as a you know a study of mythology or 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 story or just a collection of stories, but we're talking about living stories, much like an ifa. Ifa's corpus was transmitted orally for centuries, millennia almost. Uh, and it was kept alive by oral traditions through poetry. So yeah. they had their own bardic, if you will, you know, story through song and through uh, through poems. Uh, essay, what they call essay ifa. They kept the tradition alive for, for that period of time. One would say uh, probably almost unbroken for at least several hundred years. Almost, we're looking about almost a millennium, unbroken. There is a part where it gets a little foggy in terms of the history of Ifa and Orisa, Vodun and all that, because it's believed that those traditions migrated in different waves from other parts of the world, uh, East Africa, Egypt, uh, Mesopotamia, and everything else into those areas, and but basically coalesced or, re, or regrouped, if you will, in West Africa, and, and has created a, a very vibrant, living, breathing tradition, which boasts, you know, well over 200 million adepts when you look at all the branches of uh, Yoruba, Farisa, Vodun, Lukumi, Candomblé, all those, that family of, of beliefs that believe in Orisha, and all, represents almost the sixth largest belief system in the world. So, which is interesting, though, is what we heard is that within the Druid tradition right now, as it's practiced, especially the, and I understand there's the Masonic aspect, which is more, say, ceremonial, traditional in, in some ways, but within the Masonic orders, um, the, you know, the one that's more engaged in sort of the environment and so forth, the ad, ad, advocacy and, and, you know, basically a custodianship of nature. And the third one, though, which is the religious one, it's interesting that the Druidry emphasizes the ancestral and the, the worship mm -hmm. of ancestor, cultivation of ancestor. Because one of the things we know, and, it, and, and there, there, there's a lot of that information that's kept within Ifa, Orisa, Vodun as well, that it, for us, each person has an ancestral guiding spirit. In other words, that guiding spirit is, comes down with a guardian angel, a guardian spirit, to help mm -hmm. a person fulfill a mission in, in this world. And it's quite often that believers or practitioners within many indigenous belief systems, and we we saw even from our show, even the, the Tuvan uh, shamans, mm -hmm. uh, in another in, in uh, Sangoma in South Africa. Yes. This, this tutelar, tutelar guardian or ancestral guardian spirit may not be, in many cases, is not a sanguino or, or blood relative, uh, nor even a relative or, uh, or or a spirit of place, but a spirit which may have had many incarnations and may possess a very ancient ancestral memory because of all the lifetimes that have, and it is now sort of in a in a uh, in a privileged you know sort of uh, or respect uh, respected stature as a, almost like a teacher, a mentor, a professor, you used a term, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was actually, I just, I jotted it down and I can't find it. <laughs> you used it. 
to describe that uh, a similar concept of the ancestor, the, the the more senior ancestor. What was the term you used? I, I forgot the, now. The, the mighty dead was that. The was mighty, the mighty dead, something like the mighty dead. The mighty dead. Oh, yes. Interesting you saying that because um, Philip Shellcrass, uh, when I spoke to him, described meeting um, a being at West Kennet, oddly enough, that introduced itself to him as his long father. And I just ah, thought it was a really powerful. Take, take um, as, as they say, take that to the bank. Because yeah. that, <laughs> that man, that man's experience, if that man. What that man describes is something what we've found both in yeah. research, both in interview, and people that actually practice this shamanic belief systems and make them a way of life, not just a you know cultural expression, but really a way of life, a way of healing, a way of basically leading their communities, a way of uh, guiding people in their destiny. That that is a a, a common thread. That binds, mm -hmm. and, and one of the reasons we created this show, and we 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 our motto of the show is "Life is the journey our ancestors began," is mm -hmm. basically to 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 really bring to the forefront mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. this 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 concept of these ancestors. The reason I say mm -hmm. this now is because in a tradition where the history, both oral and also even archaeological. And, and any written history was, in many cases, either systematically suppressed, destroyed, erased, mm -hmm. forgotten, whatever you want to use, whatever adjective or, or descriptive word you want to use. Uh, it is only, in many cases, through that shamanic experience, only through connecting to that uh, mm -hmm. ancestral mm -hmm. spiritual guide. What did they call it again? The long... Uh, uh, Philip Shellcrass was uh, the, the figure described itself as his long father. Long father. I'm going to write that one down. Long father. Long yes, father. I'm going to write that down too. I long like that. Long father Shellcrass. Um, that is the only way that a tradition or a belief system can be rebooted, if you will. That it can almost. Yes. Good word. It, because it, it is. It is only through that guiding spirit, at least in our belief, that you can connect to everything else you describe. It is mm -hmm. only through your guiding spirit that you can connect with your blood relatives. It is only through that guiding spirit that you can connect with the spirits of the land. It is only through that mm -hmm. guiding spirit that you can connect in any meaningful way and have the mana, the ashe, or the energy, mm -hmm. the awen, if you say, to connect with the deities, the divinities, both from the sky and from the earth. Well, yes. So, so it is very, very interesting that at least I'm happy to hear, uh, and I'm going to, of all the people you've mentioned, the one that, that most interests me in terms of these, you know, pillars of, of, of trying to revive is, is Grey Wolf. Yeah. Uh, yes. Because yes. I, I find that that is perhaps from a spiritual standpoint is one of the, one of the ways that you can, bring back that ancestral memory because mm -hmm. we it is believe that it is the ancestor the guiding ancestral spiritual guide that possesses the ancestral memory and can interface with the ancestors and the the spirits of any land and everything else because they're in the operating that spirit world and their mission is to in guide them in that realm and their mission is to guide us or orient us in this realm so i, I find it very interesting the other thing the last 
Tom, in the interest of time, because I promise you, I know for everybody tuning in, um, our guest is coming from England, and they're five hours ahead. And right now, it is nearing nearly uh, three. Three, three in the morning, <laughs> and I don't want uh, her to, you no. know, have a completely sleepless night. And we really, even doubly, appreciate your joining us. Um, but the other interesting thing was the 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 concept of the um, of the burial grounds of the of the this new revival yes. of the yes. long uh, long burial long burial and there's been uh, um, other researchers and anthropologists that have been you know studied that phenomenon and and studied that phenomenon on a cross cultural uh, you know sort of a way or, or approach um, and looking at Norse mythology, North, yeah. looking at the, the, the ones in Britain, looking at the Germanic. Um, and uh, it, what I find, it, and I, and I want to give credit to this uh, young anthropologist and, and uh, independent researcher, his name is Erith Herga. He lives in Portugal and he's, uh, he's on Patreon as well. Um, he is, also, again, when we talk about the, the path to the spirits of the land, the path to the divinities and all that, that many of these sites, as you mentioned, were more to focus on the well-being and, and to the, conti the continuance of the teachings and of the traditions through that and allowing the long bro's purpose, that, that structure was the ability for the person to enter that realm yes. and mm -hmm. to basically mm -hmm. visit, you know, in, in a more sort of immersed way mm -hmm. to yeah. do rites and rituals than you can in a modern cemetery. They, they were quite certainly, they were, whatever was going on there, which is very difficult to get to the bottom of, right. but while they were in use, certainly they were a place of interface between the living and the dead. They were not mm -hmm. just somewhere that you put a dead body and then walked away. Exactly. Exactly. They, yes. They, yes. They were places exactly. of engagement with the dead, definitely. Exactly. Exactly. And and it was a way of, of connecting to the ancestor by connecting to the ancestor to connect to the spirits of the land mm -hmm. and to, mm -hmm. to a different spirituality. In one of uh, Mr. Herga's video, even uh, that there was even some beliefs that the that by doing that. The, the spirits of those dead even ascended spiritually and, and had a, a way of becoming even, you know, the, the, what do we call in, in many spiritual traditions described as elves or other type of spiritual beings because they, they almost like a butter, like a butter, uh, uh, metamorphosis for yeah. the, the uh, caterpillar and, and the cocoon and the butterfly. That the fact of putting them in this cocoon allowed them to have and through, you know, offerings and through communication and through maintaining that link and extending that link and using that link to speak to the spirits of the land and the, and the gods of the land, that they were able to help that spirit to evolve. And, and yeah. some of their, their more colorful, into elves and other types of creatures. And there are similar... It's very interesting as well with you saying that there are two things. I said that the medieval legends are tricky in terms of um, getting yeah. back to the pre-Christian belief, but it is interesting that in, in Ireland, the she, or usually translated as the fairy folk, uh, mm -hmm. probably the Tuatha de Danann, who were a, an, an, an earlier 
group of inhabitants of Ireland who are sort of connected right. with the gods, they live in burial mounds. The idea is that their place, the place you encounter them is in burial mounds. And okay. in the first branch of the Mabinogi, Priyanan um, comes out of, or she appears when Paul goes to Gursefa Beth, which is a burial mound. So again, there's this there's this connection between these spirits, these beings, and the burial places. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So again, in the interest of time, I, I'm a man of my word, yes. and Teresa is a, a, a lady of I'm hers. Fine. I am fine. <laughs> uh, I, we just we're we're just uh, running ways to contact you again uh, by email at ladybeba at hotmail .com. And you said you can also be reached at your academic address, which is j s j sorry j dot s dot uzel at durham dot ac dot uk, or on Facebook at uh, under Jennifer dot uh, uzel. So uh, no, on Facebook, I'm Jennifer Susan as well, because they they oh. wouldn't believe me that it was my real name. So if you're looking for me on Facebook, it's Jennifer Susan as well. Ah, okay, yeah. perfect, perfect. Okay. Um, uh, awesome. in, in preparation to 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 conclude, uh, is there a saying or um, a philosophy, a word, a, an extract, a quote that? Oh, she's, she's got, got, got her quote. She's <laughs> got her ready. She's ready to go. I didn't trust myself to remember it. Yeah, okay. there's a, a quotation from an American author called Barry Lopez. Um, that I just think is so perfect and it, it sums up the way I look at the world and it kind of um, sums up, I think, the way that Druidry looks at, at the world as well. And it is this, it is everything is held together with stories. That's all that's holding us together, stories and compassion. Nice. Very, nice. Very beautiful. I like that. Simple. Simple, simple and, and, and right goes to the yeah. heart of the matter, doesn't it? Right. Uh, from Claire Constant Baron, she says, amazing learning experience. Jennifer, thank you for your knowledge. Teresa and Jean-Jerome, thank you for, thank you. Love your show. Blessings to you all. Thank you, Claire, for tuning in again. Yes, absolutely. And then to everyone who's tuned in, yes. uh, giving their comments, uh, Ken, uh, uh, Dr. Jean-Michael Salvato, uh, Yanifa, yes. uh, Carol Luce uh, Trepanier, Jay Sword, uh, mm -hmm. To all those that uh, took the time to ask questions or make comments, we really appreciate mm -hmm. your continued uh, support. And I would be remiss as we as we uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of things. So 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 Jenna, Jenna, again, we don't want you to to then blame us that you 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 didn't get any sleep tonight. <laughs> so as we said, if if you'd like to to uh, Adjourn for yourself. Otherwise, I'm just going to make a couple of quick announcements, okay. and um, and and that. But before I go to the, to our our formal announcements, I must recognize one of our most loyal uh, followers and uh, <laughs> person that watches her show. And this is our I'm quickly becoming the show mascot. And this is Mojo. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, cat, which religiously tunes in to our show, and uh, today tonight is no exception. And uh, he was oh, even oh, trying to look at him. He was even trying to post a comment and a question for you, Jenny, but uh, he was uh, taken off the keyboard before he could uh, 
he could complete his message. So I, I could, I would be remiss because one of our most loyal furry followers is Mojo, which I call my oh, little furry godson, the, the cat who's, who received Ifa and became a diviner. So uh, I, I, I this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet. I gotta meet this cat. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, we have to bring him on to the show. He has to be, have him in my my hands with best permission, so that I know. Uh, no, we and, have to. Oh no, that's something extra. And in in keeping with the uh, shamanic uh, theme, um, uh, I'll turn it over to Teresa because this really it's an announcement for for uh, Teresa and the Slavic Witch page, and for Teresa as a psychic medium. Um, Thank you, yes. Okay, so I had the privilege of having one of our very own in our community, uh, V&E, do a brand new logo for me, okay? And this is a logo that I'm going to be using for also my business cards. And... What I have on my Facebook page, The Slavic Witch, which Jean Jerome so nicely and dearly put together for me my concept of, of what I look at through my spiritual beliefs and my ancestry as well. Viennese so beautifully captured what I wanted artistically and with the concepts that Jean Jerome had put together for me. And this is what she came up with. I love this. I just love it. So we have the um, looking north directly above. We have the, the black widow spider who I have a personal connection to um, as well. And um, her link to Ifa as the EME. And of course, going this way to where the bird woman is, okay, and that is the, it's a Slavic prophetic bird known as the Gamayan, I believe in Russian. Um, and she is the seer. And so she, is, she sings as a prophet and as a seer. And then going to the complete south, we have what we call, um, the poppy it's it's the polish poppy the black uh you know the poppy but in regards to the the fern okay so there's a little bit of a myth to this the the magical myth that can be found i believe it's in spring if people go if and particularly women if they go into the forest men can too and they find the flowering fern it renders a red flower that looks like a poppy. And if they find this, they will be not only successful in a good marriage, um, but also very prosperous. So it brings fortune, good luck, and prosperity. And then moving along, we have the two opposing energies of Perun, who is in white, and Veles, who is described in, in red. red. So if, if I could draw the analo the analogy to um, what did I mention to Viennese? It was Shango and 
Be more almost like Eshu compared to Obatala. And, Eshu to Obatala. Um, yeah, yeah, that too. But I was thinking more like um, Ogu and Shango. Ogu no Shango. Yes. Yeah. So they're, they're diametrically opposed energies, but yet facing one another. So they're almost a completion unto themselves. And they have a very big influence in Slavic um, mythology. And of course, in the middle, right there, is not only a rendition of Yemoya, which I am her daughter, okay, Ifa, but she is also an artistic interpretation of the Warsaw. If you go into Warsaw, there is the mermaid, and she holds a shield and a sword, and that is the emblem of Warsaw, and it is the, the fighting mermaid. So, and of course, Starbucks, I'm sure they stole that and made it their own, <laughs> but there, there you go. So all of that tied together on, in a drum, on a drum as a background. Okay. And that has to do with the type of shamanic witchcraft that I practice through my own ancestral guide as well. So I love this. I think it's wonderful. So again, this is me, Teresa Slowinski, the psychic medium, also known as the Slavic witch in my crone years. This is quintessentially me. I love this. I can't stop staring at it. I'm, I'm really in love with it. And I want to thank VNE from the bottom of my heart. It's beautiful. It really, truly is. It's, it's, it's stunning. I don't know. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I think it's beautiful. So thank you once again, VNE. And this oh. is... This is me. And this also to, to link to the alliance that we have formed. And this is where Jean-Jerome, I'd like you to take over in regards to explaining. So uh, as uh, Teresa is mentioning, uh, there is part of, you know, everything we're doing in terms of a revival and, a, and basically helping to create a community internationally of people who follow an ancestral spiritual belief system and path. We have some, you know, allies or grouping affiliations of the Consejo Cultural Yoruba de Canada, which focuses on the Risa practice, both on the traditional and the Lukumi Afro-descendant side. We have the Vodun uh, Fa uh, temple of Wobomale uh, from Daniel Pareiro, Bocono da Foji, who was initiated in, in Benin. We have Ifa World Conference, which represents 17 Babalaos from around the world, which engage in constant uh, research uh, and basically investigation in terms of Ifa practice, trying to exactly what we're talking about, go back uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the tradition in Nigeria and different areas, but especially in the lineage of Lagos, to try to rescue, to basically recover some of the traditions, words, language, ceremony that did not fully transmit or come over during the slave mm -hmm. uh, Holocaust um, in the transatlantic slave trade. And we have the Alara Temple from Baba Oba Ifaseye uh, in Florida, uh, which mm -hmm. is again a traditional. He was made 28 trips to to West Africa, including uh, Nigeria and Benin. Uh, and um, is basically part of, of this family. And uh, I 
we want to in informally as well. Uh, <laughs> it's going to switch. Uh, talk about Utu, uh, Witch Doctor, and the yes. uh, voodoo temple of think, of uh, Niagara Falls, of Niagara. And um, we are doing a uh, where we've been invited, Teresa and I have been invited to be an honor guests at their conjure camp, conjuration camp. And so we, we would like uh, everybody to know that's on the 29th and 30th of this month. And again, it's the, the, the big uh, thing about this is uh, Utu is our friend. He's been a, a, a basically a stalwart of the community in, uh, in terms of indigenous shamanic practice. He, is, um, he comes of uh, Scottish origin. Uh, yeah. But was initiated in Mozambique in terms of uh, indigenous African uh, mm -hmm. belief systems and took on the, the title of witch doctor, actually, uh, ancestral witch doctor. And yes. um, so basically, we want to let everybody know that this is uh, going on. Mm -hmm. And I'll just show the event. Mm hmm. Facebook is getting a little slow. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're going to be at this event. Jean Jerome will yeah. be um, will be doing is an honored guest, as you said, and will be part of the ceremony that Utu has invited us to participate in. Um, I will be doing spiritual readings as well. So just to reiterate that I do readings, spiritual readings, I do house blessings and clearings, and of course, my favorite paranormal investigations. So uh, I'm so, so looking so forward you may, to this. So you may get a knock at the door, Jenny, in, uh, <laughs> in Ireland, in the UK. <laughs> if you hear, paranormal investigation. <laughs> Absolutely. Chacha Teresa will be coming to the UK and doing paranormal investigations. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yes, I wanted to say thank you to Utu to extending the invitation to us. We're looking forward to that for sure. And I just wanted to ask, Jennifer, do you have any sort of workshops that you do that uh, people may want to contact you for? Uh, not workshops as such, no. Um... I'm occasionally at academic conferences, but not so much this year. But okay. uh, not not that spring to mind that would be particularly useful. But um, OBOD and BDO both have Facebook pages and websites. And if people want to find out more about those, then absolutely uh -huh. go there and look. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So I think we're done as far yeah. as our... Um, our last round of comments was for uh, our little Mojo friend. He's so cute. <laughs> and yes, then he is. Mojo with loving, loving <laughs> eyes. Beth, He's now got a following. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. And for your logo, Jay Sword says, I love it, Teresa. Thank you, Jay. I know I love it too. I think it's and awesome. And Vianney, yay. Take a bow, my dear. Take wow, a bow. It's, it's it is beautiful. I just can't it's stop staring shy. at it. <laughs> and uh, Claire says she loves the logo. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank so, you so again, much. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Again, yes. I know it's a late night for you. 
Uh, please know you now have family in Ontario and in Canada, the province of Ontario in both Toronto and Midland. Okay, and yes. uh, we hope that this is not, you know, is the beginning of an ongoing dialogue, friendship, and possibly research and collaboration, because we really, we, we, we really take it seriously mm -hmm. wanting to work with our guests in terms of research and trying to mm -hmm. really showcase and bring into the front, you know, light the, the indigenous spiritual belief systems as they manifest and as they're practicing, mm -hmm. as they're making a renaissance, a rebirth yes. In, in, yes. in different parts of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Well, so to everybody, okay. good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. everybody. Thank you Thanks for tuning in. in. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be safe. All right. Enjoy your weekend. What's that? Yanifa <laughs> uh, says, yes, the logo is dope. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ianifa. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> All right. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.